called Better. And we have been making our way through some passages from the wisdom literature, uh, specifically uh, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, uh, in what are we call some of the better verses. So uh, we've talked about better is wisdom uh, than uh, much gold and silver, and better is God's word than a big savings account full of money, and better is taking advice than thinking you know it all. We talked about better is uh, loving relationships um, than uh, a feast and hatred with it. Uh, better is integrity. And today we are coming to the next one in our list, which you might not have seen coming, but basically, in a nutshell, it is uh, better is a funeral than a party. All right, so aren't you glad you came today? So that's what we're talking about today. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father God, I thank you because you always know what we need and you always know exactly when we need it. And I would imagine that what we're going to talk about this morning is not something we usually want to talk about or we usually want to think about, but it's uh, very important. And I believe that uh, it, this is a day for that. And so I pray for us that you will um, be our teacher this morning. And I pray that we will open ourselves to uh, the guidance of your spirit and your word. We need to hear from you today. And I know that you stand eager to speak to us. So I pray we'll be like that good soil that receives your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I don't know how old uh, you were the first time you went to a funeral. Uh, I was about nine years old. So the background is that uh, when I was, uh, before I was in school, and then my, uh, in kindergarten and in first grade, my parents were both bankers, uh, worked full time, and so we had a babysitter. My wife and I, or my wife, my, uh, my sister and I, my wife and I don't go back that far, um, my sister and I had a babysitter, uh, and her name was Mary Jane, and she lived a, a couple of towns over from where we lived. And so my parents would drive us to Mary Jane's in the morning, and uh, before we were in school, we'd just spend the whole day there, and she had some other kids there. And then uh, when I was in kindergarten, uh, she would drive me to school in the morning, so I went to school in, a, in another community and in the first grade as well. And then in the second grade, my parents got uh, another arrangement with a next-door neighbor, and we were able to live uh, are able to kind of spend our time with our next door neighbors and go to school in our own community, which is cool. Um, but a couple of years after uh, we stopped going to Mary Jane, she passed away. And she was really close to our family. We knew her really well. And so my parents told me that Mary Jane had passed away and that we were going to her funeral. And I'd never been to a funeral before I was nine. It's going to be a brand new experience for me. And they did not prepare me at, at all uh, for what was coming. And so we went to this funeral home, and it was, of course, uh, you know, very solemn, and um, people were speaking in really hushed tones, and, um, and then we had the service, and I remember, like, seeing this box up front, but I didn't know what it was or, you know, like, what was in there, and it hadn't even occurred to me that uh, Mary Jane was in there, and at the end of the service, uh, my parents said, you know, let's, let's go up, and we're going to go say goodbye to Mary Jane, and I was like, What? Like, we're what? I thought she was already dead. Like, you know, what's going on? And so my parents took me by the hand and we went up. And I tell you, it was, it was terrifying for a nine-year-old who wasn't prepared. Like, just the first time I, it was my first funeral and the first time I'd really literally came face-to-face uh, -face with death. And it left an impression on me, a mark on me. Now, I wasn't a Christian. My family weren't Christians. We had never the gospel. We had never talked about things like death. 
And um, so this was, this was shocking for me. So now, um, I would tell you it was probably the last thing I wanted to do that day. But as it, turned it out, as it turns out, it was exactly what I needed on that day. Six years later, I still hadn't forgot that scenario. Um, I hadn't forgot uh, what it was like to see Mary Jane uh, face to face. Um, and then six years later, I heard the gospel. And as I heard the gospel shared, and as someone talked about uh, spiritual death and physical death that comes as a result of that, I just remember everything started to click for me. Because I had been wondering for six years, what could you do about physical death? Is there no hope? Is there nothing that can be done? And I was just told where I lived, like, no, there's no hope. You're just going to die and that's it. And then I heard that there was actually a solution to that problem. And really, God used that situation six years earlier in some ways to prepare me for the coming of the gospel. And I was ready and eager to receive the gospel Looking back, again, I can tell you there were a thousand places I would have rather been that day when I was nine, but there was no place that I needed to be more than in that house of mourning. That's our passage today, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, and Solomon says to us, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Not some of the most exciting uh, words we might read. But words, nevertheless, that I think are very, very important. I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about this concept. And I want to I start by just kind of talking about how a funeral can be a good thing uh, for us. Because what a funeral does is it, it highlights a problem that we all have in a very unique way in a, in a, at a time where we are often sensitive to the leading of God. Now, Solomon has written these words in Ecclesiastes 7. And uh, four chapters earlier, he writes some words that are known by a, a lot of us. In fact, a lot of people who are not even Christians, never even read the Bible before, might recognize these words in Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 1. Solomon writes this, For everything there is a season, turn, 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 and a time, that's in the original language, and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born, and a time to die. And so Solomon talks about this idea that there is a season or a time for every matter under heaven. And he goes through this list, a time to be born and a time to die. And he talks about a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to, to kill, a time to heal. He mentions a time to break down and build up, weep and laugh, seek and lose, a time for war, a time for peace. And he talks about all these, these seasons in life. Pastor Douglas Wilson says this in his commentary of Ecclesiastes. He says, now this passage does not contain marching orders for us. This is not an agenda. We're not being told that it is time to sow now and in a few months it will be time for us to get out there and reap. We are being told that we have been placed in a world that we did not create and that this world has various repetitive cycles which have been assigned by someone else. Solomon's point is simply this, that God's sovereignty extends over everything. That's the point of Ecclesiastes 3, over everything. It includes a time to be born. God's sovereignty extends over when we were born, right? So none of us had a pre-birth meeting with God to say, hey, you know, let's have some coffee and let's talk about uh, where I'm going to be born and the family I'm going to be born into. You didn't get 
have any input on that. You were like, hey, I'd like to be born on January 7th. That's, that seems like a great date. Like, God didn't consult you. God determined all the details of your birth, when and where and how and all that. In the same way, it is God who determines the day of our death, the day of our funeral. It is thrust upon us, as commentators say. God is sovereign, and it is God who determines these things. This is reality. So again, back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. This is why he says it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, a, a party. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. In other words, it will do us more good to go to a funeral than it would to go to a party. So the house of mourning in those days when someone died, um, they would usually have to bury the body pretty quickly. Uh, and so what they would do is immediately uh, you would go over to that person's house, wherever they lived, and uh, you would pay your last respects. And in that culture, often the body would be on display for that one day, and you'd go there, and you would talk with family, and, you know, you would say goodbye to the person, and you'd, you'd look at their body there. And in other words, death was on display. Death wasn't ignored in that culture, and in fact, in many cultures of the world today, death is still not ignored. It is kind of out there for everyone to see. Not so in our culture. Our culture has done pretty much everything that it can to sanitize what we see um, from the reality of our mortality. Our culture doesn't want you thinking about the fact that your days are numbered. We don't talk about it. Um, if, if someone does talk about it, we worry about them, you know. If they talk about death, uh, we think they need therapy, and, you know, that's too bad. We don't invite them to our parties. No one wants that guy at your party coming and going, hey, I was just thinking about death lately. Anyone else think about death? Want to talk about that? Right, we're not into that. I was listening to a podcast the other day that wasn't actually on this at all. But um, they were talking to uh, uh, a pastor, and he was talking about the fact that uh, in early American history, and even over in Europe, uh, Europe in churches, uh, the average church would have a cemetery. And when you would come to church on the weekends, on Sunday, you would usually have to walk past the cemetery. And the cemetery was there to remind you uh, about why you're coming to church. Because we are people who were born dead in our sin. And we needed a savior. And this reminds us that the cemetery is the end of, of all people. And so we come to celebrate a Savior, celebrate one who has made it possible for us to be born again, to have new life. And so it was great. We, we came to church with a purpose, and we were reminded of what that was, where today we don't really do that. We need parking, apparently more than we need cemeteries. And so again, even in churches, we kind of sanitize that. And, and in funerals these days, it's rare to actually have a body there for viewing anymore. Uh, it's too unsettling. It's too confrontive. But Solomon says it's better. It's better to be reminded of death than it is to go to a feast. Why? Because death, he says, is the end of every person. We're all headed there. We don't like to think about it, we don't like to be reminded of it. I came across this uh, graph recently. This uh, looks at um, the average age of men and women across the globe. And I know this is probably too small to see. Uh, it's not, depending on 
uh, who you are and when you were born, it's not necessarily the greatest news. I'll just kind of break it down here. So one thing we see is that uh, women all over the world live longer than men. There's a lot of speculation about why that is. Uh, and then you can see, and I'm not going to get into it, um, so you can see you get Africa, uh, you know, the female usually lives about 64 years, the men 60. By the way, this is based on if you were born today, how long your life expectancy would be. We get down to North America, just Oceania is a, just slightly above of us, but you can see if you're a female, you can expect to live 81 years, and if you're a male, you can expect to live 75 years. I had some people at the last service say, ouch, uh, like, <laughs> I don't know whether to celebrate because I'm beyond that or to be really scared, uh, but anyways, the, the, the point is this, the day of death, the day of death is approaching for every one of us, and that day of death has more to teach us than the day of birth. I read one guy this week who said this, the day of birth uh, is more about possibilities and the day of death is more about facts. So what he means is this, that um, at birth, the focus tends to be on possibilities, right? When someone's born, we're like, you know, we start to think about, oh, where they'll go and what they'll see and what they'll do and what they'll accomplish and how their life will matter, whether or not that's even realistic, right? Nobody sits around on the day of birth and goes, so, apparently the clock's already ticking for little Johnny here, you know? Like, we don't, we don't do that on the day of birth, right? But a funeral helps us focus on what is absolutely factual and what we would otherwise um, ignore, our inescapable problem and God's gracious solution, which takes us to a story. I want to talk today about a funeral that reveals God's solution for us. There is a story in the book of John, and you've probably read it, and it's a great uh, kind of text for what we're talking about today, because in it we find the solution to the problem that Solomon is talking about. In John chapter 11, verse 1, we begin reading in this story. It says, Now a certain man was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we have these, uh, these siblings, these two sisters and a brother. Uh, Mary was uh, someone who loved to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him teach. Martha had the gift of hospitality. We know all about Martha. She also loved the Lord. And they had what scholars believe, probably because of the way things are worded, probably a younger brother whose name was Lazarus. And Jesus has a very unique relationship with these siblings. We know that he would go to their place sometimes, that they would practice hospitality, and apparently he has just a very special relationship with them. In verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And it's been noted that this is not an invitation and this is not a request. They don't say, would you please come quickly? Um, it's just assumed that when Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick, that he would absolutely want to come. So they're just letting, they're just letting Jesus know that Lazarus is ill and obviously very ill and they don't even say, please come because they just know that he will. Verse four, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So now, it's all a little confusing, us knowing the story, because in fact, it does lead to death, doesn't it? Like Lazarus does die, but Jesus is just, it's his way of saying um, something really amazing is afoot. And God is going to do something that you could not even imagine. So hold on. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha 
and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So it says that Jesus loved them. Agapao is the word that's used here, and we understand that's a word that's used to describe the love of God for us, a love that is compassionate, a love that is sacrificial, a love that is steadfast. And so we might expect that when Jesus finds out that somebody that he loves dearly is ill, that he would, you know, Uber a donkey really quick and like make his way to where Lazarus is. But instead, kind of let me paraphrase what it says. It says he loved Lazarus so much that he just stayed away. And that's what he does. And he stays away on purpose. I think sometimes when we're going through a crisis, and when we're reaching out to God, have you done that? And you're praying, you're like, God, I need you to show up today. I have a deadline today. Something's happening today. And when God doesn't show up, how do we feel when God delays, when we pray? I need you today, and he delays. And I think there's a lot of ways we can, you know, things we can feel. Sometimes it feels like he doesn't care. Or it might feel like, you know, well, my thing isn't that important compared to everything else going on in the world. There are people with much bigger problems, and, you know, there's Ukraine and stuff. So, you know, maybe God cares, but just my thing's too small. Or you know, maybe just that God isn't involved in stuff like that. Like he's involved in the big stuff, but probably not the stuff I'm going through. Or maybe you might feel like I did something or said something, and maybe God's mad at me right now, and he doesn't love me right now, and that's why he's kind of giving me the cold shoulder. But John 11 tells us that when God delays in responding to one of his children, it is a delay of love. It is because it is best for us. Now, we can't expect to always know all the details of why God delays or what God might be doing, but faith trusts God. It trusts the omniscience of God, right? That God knows all the details and the omnipotence of God, that God has the power to respond and take care of any of our problems, but it also believes in the providence of God, that God is both sovereign and that God is, is compassionate, that he loves us, that he's good. And it's trusting that God is always going to do what's best for us, and sometimes that means that God is going to delay in responding to what we're praying for. And so Christ delays in his response to Mary and Martha, and he's going to do it for a reason, as we'll see. So for two days, he just calmly goes about his, his business, his work, many miles away. And meanwhile, you can, you can almost imagine that Mary and Martha are praying by the hour, and they're maybe going out on the front porch and looking down the road. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Peter or John or anyone coming? And, you know, going in, and well, I don't see them. They're not coming. Where are they? And this goes on, and then it tells us that two days later, in verse 7, this says, Then after uh, this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again which also precipitates an interesting discussion because they had just been to Judea and some of the people in Judea had tried to kill Jesus. So, you know, Thomas is like, do you think it's wise for us to go back right now? And Jesus is like, yeah, let's go. Verse 11, so after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover, right? What's the big deal? He's, now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant, you know, that he was just taking a nap and that he'll recover. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Notice, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but now let us go to him. And there it is. There's the purpose for delaying. It's for their faith. It's for their growth. It's for their soul. So Lazarus was dead and his body had been prepared for burial while Jesus is still a ways off. 
It had been wrapped up in cloths and spices. And then uh, Martha and Mary would have led a procession from their home uh, all the way out to the tomb. And uh, there would have been mourners there with them. That some speeches would have been given. Some prayers would have been offered. And then they would have uh, had a processional that would go back to the house uh, where they would gather again to mourn the loss of Lazarus. In verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So now Lazarus has been dead for four days. The body is beginning to decay, and the ritual mourning has reached its, its high point and is now kind of descending because at this point they believe there's absolutely no help for their lost loved one. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house, like she's not going at this point. Um, she's, I just picture her with her arms crossed and like, you know, Jesus had his chance. And so Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so it sounds like she's criticizing him at this point, right? If you had just done like I asked, if you had just come when I told you to, none of this would have happened. And again, I think we can go there sometimes, even with God. We're praying about something. We have a timeline. God needs to show up at this time. And when he doesn't show up, we can become a little critical of God. All right? Like, you know, God, where were you when my marriage was falling apart? I was praying for that. And it's like, where were you? You didn't show up. Or when my job was on the line, or when I was going through that hard thing, or got rejected, or got sick, or needed a miracle, everything would be fine now if you had just done what I asked you to do when I told you to do it. And I think, again, it's been noted like, like Martha, right, who's just kind of expressing her heart to God and how she's feeling at this moment. Some people have noted, you know, it's okay to tell God how we feel because God already knows how we feel, how we're hurting and when we're struggling and, and, and when we're frustrated. But here's key, and this is so important. Never forget this. Yes, it's okay to tell God how we're feeling, but we must always express ourselves in faith. Because even though Martha is struggling to understand, she still trusts Jesus. It's not like, okay, now I don't even know, Jesus, if I can trust you anymore. In verse 22, notice what she says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so she's struggling and she's hurting and she's crying out to God, but she's crying out with faith. Verse 23, and Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha's just saying, you know, I know that he's going to rise. I know about the end of time and I know about the resurrection and appearing before God and all this stuff. But she's like, but what about now? Because I'm hurting right now. I'm struggling right now. I'm mourning right now. I'm just, she's like, I know about the end of time, but I wish that you had shown up because it would have solved my pain and my hurting right now. That was, that's what she was concerned about. Verse 25, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. It's been noted that her confession sounds a little bit like Peter when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a great confession that she has. Jesus is just saying, this situation is good. It's not as bad as you might think that it is because it's getting us to talk about some things that normally we wouldn't talk about. To talk about our biggest problems. It's a chance for Jesus to talk about the fact that sin 
has brought spiritual death into the world. And spiritual death has brought physical death into the world. So that physical death is just an illustration of a much bigger problem. That is the, the status of the soul that is disconnected from God. And the fact that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus says, everyone who believes in me shall never die. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he is, he is God who has come to us in the flesh. We're going to be celebrating Christmas in a few weeks and thinking about the incarnation, about God in the flesh. That Jesus came to live among us, to live as one of us, who lived a perfect life in our place, who revealed God to us, who went to a cross and died for us, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves, who paid the ransom for our sin, who makes it possible through faith to be right with God. And when we believe in Jesus, what scripture says is that God takes away our sin, and when our sin is taken away, we become children of God who have been brought back to spiritual life. We are, we are born again, scripture says, and now we are connected with the Father, and we have Christ as our, as our high priest, as our mediator, and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And when we place our faith in Christ, we are brought alive spiritually right then and right there. And Jesus asked her a big question. He says, do you believe this? And see, if Lazarus hadn't died, the crowd wouldn't be there thinking about this vital topic. And so it really was better than a party. And so Martha goes back to the house and tells Mary that Jesus is nearby and wants to see her. And she goes out to meet Jesus and the mourners follow her out there. In verse 32, it says, and, and now when Mary came to see where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet. And she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. All right, it sounds kind of like a broken record at this point. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And now we reach kind of an interesting portion of the passage. And a lot has been made of this. But when it says that Jesus was deeply moved... Uh, the word in the Greek there literally means to snort with anger. In fact, the word was originally used of a horse that might snort and, you know, kind of get mad and it's going to come at you. And so, you know, we can look and say, what is Jesus upset about? Some have even said that it's kind of a, it was an involuntary kind of action on his part and his humanness. What is Jesus angry about? Well, I think it's, it, we might think of it this way. Jesus being God eternal has come from heaven. Jesus was the one, scripture says, who was our creator. Um, he created Adam and Eve in the garden. He created the garden. He created the earth. He knew the beauty and the perfection of all of it. But he was also there when they sinned. And he has, sinned, he has seen how sin has ravaged the world and, and ravaged humanity and how it has touched every human being. And he sees the sadness and the sorrow and the pain and the grief. And I believe what he is angry about is what sin has done to the world and what Satan has done to the world and how death has impacted people that he loves. And it says that he's troubled. He feels for Mary. He feels for Martha. And their sorrow has become his. He's taking it upon himself. And in verse 34, it says this, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And 
then we have the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Verse 35, and Jesus wept. And the word just wept there just means tears. He shed, he shed tears. He's, he's feeling for them. And this is really interesting when you think about it, right? Just think about what Jesus knows that they don't know, right? They don't know what's about to happen. He does. I would just be thinking, you know, if I was, I mean, there's a hundred million reasons I'm not Jesus, but if I was Jesus and I was there that day, I would have been like so excited. I'd been like, you guys have no idea what's about to happen. I can't wait to show you, right? But it says he stops and, and he, he feels their pain. He takes it upon himself, even though he knows what's about to happen. Because he is, Scripture says, our great high priest. He is not indifferent to your sorrow. I mean, a lot of times in life, we feel sorrow about things, that, and Jesus knows the end of it. He knows the joy that will come. He knows the happiness that will come. When we're in the middle of the story and it's hard, Jesus knows how it will end for us. That for those of us who are children of God, it will end in joy. It will end in celebration. But even so, as our great high priest, he feels what we feel in the moment, even though he knows what we do not know. It says that he enters into that with us. He has experienced all the pain and sorrow and hurt and betrayal and difficulties that we face in life and he knows how we feel and he cares about it. He cares about you. He doesn't just walk up to you in your pain and go, no, stop, stop crying. You, it's gonna be okay. He enters into it with us. He feels it with us. Going on in verse 36, so the Jews said, see how Jesus loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And they ask a fair question, right? Jesus could have kept Lazarus from dying. So why didn't he? Well, he didn't because Jesus knows that it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a party. Verse 38, so Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave. And a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away this stone. Now Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, or as some translations say, a great uh, stench, for he has been dead four days. Now a typical tomb in those days was often sometimes carved out of the side of a hill or into rock. And um, it would have up to eight occupants because most people couldn't afford just to have a, a single dwelling one. And so Lazarus's tomb could have already been occupied by other bodies. And Martha doesn't understand what Jesus could be up to in this moment. Verse 40, so Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would have seen, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is, is going to pray to the Father. He, he could have, you know, just prayed silently, quietly, but he prays out loud. And his prayer is kind of like, Father, I, I thank you that you always hear me, and I thank you that I don't need to pray out loud, but I'm going to pray out loud so everyone will hear me praying out loud, and they'll know when I'm praying out loud that what's about to happen is because of, you know, everything I'm praying about right now. And then it says in verse 43, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped 
with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So we don't, we're not really told how quickly everything happens here, but I can imagine it at least took a little bit of time as Jesus says very loudly for Lazarus to come out because he's all bandaged up. Maybe you can't hear that well. And, and so, but again, he's laying down in the tomb. No one's going anywhere near the tomb. So Lazarus has got to get up. He's kind of bandaged up a little bit. He's got to kind of get up. He's maybe a little stiff from being dead for four days and he's got to stretch and get up and he's kind of shuffling out and it's, I just, I can imagine even if they had to wait for 30 or 60 seconds, it probably seemed like a long, long time, didn't it? When Jesus like, come forth and everybody's like, oh man. So he's, it's on the line now, right? He's coming out or he's not. And people are like, you think he's really coming out? And all of a sudden there's a little shadow and you know, out he comes and there he stands. And so yeah, I picture like Mary and Martha are running up to him because he can't really walk very well. And they're, they start unwrapping him and you know, they're probably weeping for joy and kissing him. He's all gross and skin falling off, you know, that stuff. And, uh, but, but think about it. The funeral had just become a celebration. The best celebration anyone there had ever been to. Verse 45, And then many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And that is why Jesus delayed. So that people would see and believe. And he could have prevented Lazarus' funeral. Instead, he made sure that it happened because he wanted to stir their souls, so they would take it to heart. So they would ask the big questions. Who am I? How did I get here? Why am I here? What happens when I die? How can I be prepared for that? Jesus knows our tendency to seek distraction from thinking about the hard things in life. And death is absolutely one of those things. And because God loves us, because he cares about us, he says, sometimes I need you to go to a funeral. Sometimes I need you to mourn and be sad because it's good for the soul. It makes you ask the most important questions. How can I get right with God so that when this life is over, I will have the next life the way God intended? In Ecclesiastes 7, 2, it tells us this. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. So how do we do that? How do we take it to heart? In your notes, I've noted just, just three things very quick. I'm sure we can mention many, but three things I want to mention. The first is this. We remember that death is inevitable. And ignoring the reality of that is not going to help. And again, I doubt that any of you woke up this morning and thought to yourself, you know, I just hope Pastor Bob talks about death today. That would be awesome. Like of all the things we could talk about, I would love to come to church and talk about death and talk about funerals. But we need to do this from time to time. Charles Spurgeon, speaking on this subject, and I want to read this for you because he had such a way with words. He wrote this, Death is much nearer to us than we might think. To those of, uh, of you who have passed 50, 60, or 70 years of age, it must of necessity be very near. To others of us who are in the prime of life, it is not far off. For I suppose that we are all conscious that time flies more swiftly with us now than it ever did. The years of our youth 
seem to have been twice as long as the years are now that we are adults. It was but yesterday that the leaves, the buds, uh, began to swell and burst, and now the leaves are beginning to fall. And soon we shall be expecting to see old winter taking up his accustomed place. The years whirl along so fast that we cannot see the months which, as it were, make up the spokes of the wheel of our life. And the whole thing travels so swiftly that the axle thereof grows hot with speed. We are flying swiftly on towards eternity. Let us then talk about preparing to die. It is the greatest thing we have to do, and we have soon to do it. So let us talk and think something about it. Again, not something we are prone to do, but something we ought to do from time to time. I'm going back down to Northern California next weekend to preach uh, down there, and some of you know that uh, Pastor Joel, who's a longtime friend of mine, is dealing with stage four colon cancer. And this will be my third trip down there. And each time that I go down there, I spend some time with Joel and with Joy, his wife. And I've known both of them since they were in high school. And we have, um, we spend most of our time talking about death <laughs> because it's, it's just kind of the topic right now and, and um, about the, uh, how, how, how quickly it comes. Joel's 50 and he says, boy, you know, I don't, I don't know where the years went. They've gone by so fast. And we talk about, you know, his treatment, and we talk about, you know, whether he makes it or not, and we, we talk about joy and what, what she'll do if, if, if he doesn't survive this. And it's just a, it's, a, it's a lot. By the end of the evening, it's just really heavy, and I'm glad it's time to go to bed because I don't want to talk about it anymore. And, and even though we don't want to talk about it a lot, we should. We should have discussions about it every now and then. I mean, you don't, you don't have to do it every day, but, you know, we talk to our, our spouse about it. We talk to our kids about it. We talk to our parents about it. It's good for us to do. Remember that death is inevitable. Here's the second thing. We embrace God's solution. Right? Because there is a solution for this, this death problem. Again, going back to verse 25 of John chapter 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And everyone, uh, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life. Again, Scripture says that we are born dead spiritually and we need life. We need a resurrection of our soul. And Jesus has come to make a way for us to be born again. We call that the gospel. We'll be talking a lot about that in the weeks to come as we move towards Christmas. That Christ came, God in the flesh, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and Scripture says that while we were yet enemies of God, yet he came for us. He sought after us. He died for us. Think about it. People who were walking by and hurling abuse at Jesus as he hung on a cross and died for them and died for us so that there might be a way for us to be made right with God, for us to be children of God. And he says here, Jesus says, do you believe this? That is really the biggest question that I could ask you today is, do you believe this? Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Have you done that? Have you believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he came for you, that he died for you, that he rose for you, and that if you trust him, God gives you a gift 
There is no other question that is more important than that one today. And, and again, that's what talking about death does for us. That's what coming to a funeral does for us. It helps us to think about what we might not want to think about, but we absolutely need to think about. Have you done that? And here's, here's the great thing. You don't have to go through a church membership class or, or, you know, any of that stuff to be saved. You just need to trust in Christ. And you can do that today, right now, where you are. We'll pray in a minute, and we can pray for that. And you can get your sins forgiven and be right with God and be ready for that day when death comes for you to know that that will not be the end. It will be the beginning of, of eternity with God. Oh, one more thing. It means that we can now live each day to the fullest, right? That's what Jesus said. I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Because think about it. Once we are children of God, we no longer have to fear death. In fact, what Scripture says is that we die to ourselves. We pick up our cross and we follow Christ. And then we live for Him. We belong to Him. Death no longer has has a sway over us. We're now free to live our faith without fear, to live boldly, to live faithfully, to, to live each day to the fullest. That's what Psalm 90, 12 says. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom so that now we can walk with Christ in the joy of our salvation, not fearing death, but making the most of every day that God gives us. That's a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom is that which trusts Christ and that loves God and that lives each day for him. We don't know how long we have, but we are now free to live life to the fullest. Most of the funerals that I have gone to in my life are funerals that I was officiating at. I've only been to a few where I, I wasn't. So as a pastor, it means that when someone passes away and I, I'm, I'm officiating, it means a lot of like meeting with family and, and planning out the service and um, kind of leading people through their sorrow. So it's just a lot of ministry and a lot of time and the focus is always on the other person. And I, I've noticed this tendency as a pastor, it's, it's easy to be just so focused on the family and walking them through it that I can get through a funeral and have not taken it to heart myself. And yet I need to take it to heart. So one of the practices I have is when I lead funerals, uh, if there's a graveside service, what I pretty much always do is um, I, I just stay at the graveside until everyone else is gone. And then when everyone else is gone and I'm not, you know, having to be on anymore, then I can just take some time to be there and talk to God and ask God, what do you have for my heart? How do I take this to heart in my own life? How do I live more boldly and faithfully for you? Because it's something that all of us need to do. We all need to take it to heart. So we don't, you know, in the same way that we don't have any control over the day of our birth or the day of our death or the day of the death of loved ones, the one thing we can do is take it to heart when it comes. To spend time with our Lord to let it remind us that our days are numbered as well, but we don't have to live in fear because we have a Savior who has lived and died for us and risen for us and ascended for us and intercedes for us, and he will receive us one day into glory, into life eternal.
It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. And in the same way that for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, there was a great celebration that day. There awaits a great celebration, a great feast for us when this life is, is over and we enter in to the presence of the Lord and we celebrate with him for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, I, th- I thank you for this passage today. <laughs> you know, again, probably not what most of us uh, would have chosen on our own uh, to think about today, to talk about today. But it is extremely important nonetheless. And Father, I pray for those who have recently been to the house of mourning, for those who are about to go to the house of mourning. Father, that, that they will be able to take it to heart, that they will find there both an important reminder of our mortality, but they will also find their great comfort in Christ, our Savior, in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Father God, we take this to heart today. And we thank you that we have one who has made it possible for us to be born again in our spirit, in our soul. And one day, we'll resurrect even this body to new life. In your presence, to be with you for eternity. How we long for that day, but in the meantime, May we live life to the fullest in all of its joy and all of its blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.